Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, a new playbook. Economist and author K.U. Jin tells us why the West still needs a better understanding of China. The relationship between the world's two largest economies, the United States and China, has rarely been more tense. China's new ambassador in Washington, Xi Feng, has admitted that this is a time of serious difficulties and challenges, but insists he wants to put relations between the two nations back on track. And one person who may have an insight in how to do that is my guest, economist and author K.U. Jin, whose latest book is The New China Playbook. Kyojin, thank you ever so much for inviting us into your home. Now, in your book, you, you say it's been designed to talk about China in the original. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, China is a faraway country, has a long history, its own, his, uh, his, its own culture. And um, it's not about translation, but sometimes it's lost in the language, it's lost in the messages, and people tend to not see China for what it is, but from the outside perspective. I think a lot of people, when they go to China, they have a totally different perspective. They understand China more. Um, so I'm trying to bring that into writing. And as an economist, I want to tell a story about China in the original without um, the kind of, um, the, the, you know, being lost in translation and cultural and historical perspectives, but also tell a story using a framework, data, so that everybody can understand. You also talk about your personal journey in, in the book and your first trip to the United States in, in 1997. What were your impressions? Well, my first trip that I took alone to the U.S., I was an exchange student to a New York, uh, in a New York high school, their very first. Um, and I live with an American family. And it was um, a totally new experience for me. Uh, I was quite mesmerized by America, by the American life. Um, but it was very funny that every time I told somebody I was from China, and this is just, you know, not just my classmates, but also um, I was working for a democratic campaign with my host family, people I met, um, uh, senior officials or businessmen in New York, uh, they only think about only two or three things when I talk about China. And, um, you know, it's not the real China that I know. You know, back home, we were doing so many things. We were uh, trying to join the WTO, build, bid uh, for the Olympics, and uh, buildings were being torn down and going up, and people's lives were transformed really pretty much every five years. But that wasn't really much featured. And maybe that's where we kind of missed the moment in China, that China was joining the WTO, but we tend to focus on other things that were important for the West, but does not depend pick the whole picture of China. And we're still continuing to do that. And that's how I, f how I feel that that kind of narrative hasn't changed, even, even though China has changed, China and the world has changed, people have known, gotten to know China better, but we're not really focusing on the right things all the time. Are you saying then that the perception of China across the rest of the world hasn't changed much since then? No, I think uh, people understand about China's remarkable economic growth. They've seen hundreds of million people being lifted out of poverty. Um, but they don't necessarily see that there's evolution and, uh, and all the time and even today. And we tend to read just too much the, the headlines. Um, and it's important to separate the hype from the reality, the macro from the micro. Um, it's important to 
to have a more complete picture of China. I'm not saying that these reports are, are incorrect, but I think they're just very selective. So why do you think it is that, that China remains so impenetrable to the West? It's, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the new generation, uh, many of them have studied abroad. We're talking about half a million students every year traveling abroad, and and many of them return. 80% of the students since 2013, uh, I believe, from official statistics have returned to China. And they see China still as home, and they see China as, an, uh, as you know, as a great, great place of opportunity. And I think it speaks to the strength of China, the fact that people who have options to stay abroad actually choose to come home, even those who have fantastic options uh, in, uh, uh, in the U.S. or in Europe. Um, but interestingly enough, even though there's traveling, although mitigated over the pandemic, but even before then, there's a lot of information flows. Um, you know, the, the first barrier is potentially just simply language. Lots of the vibrancy of the dynamism of what's going on in China is simply not really feature translated across these, um, uh, these walls. And another is that um, I think in the West, uh, not everyone, but many people take to, tend to use their own lens to evaluate uh, another country, another history, um, but also another socioeconomic uh, situation. And uh, the point of my book is let's take a different perspective. Let's use a different lens. Of course, there's unifying themes in economics, but we have to introduce the elements of culture and history into that framework to better understand China and some of the decisions that the government takes. For instance, you know, paternalism is a key theme uh, that runs through throughout my book, but really, really important for the economy. The desire for stability, the, the desire to not cede too much, con uh, to, too much freedom and autonomy in the financial system explains many of the state actions, which can seem a bit too much to one culture, but actually is expected in the Chinese culture and others. It's interesting there what you're saying about um, how charged relationships can be. And I'm thinking about the recent G7 meeting that took place in Japan, where the, the language there um, around China in particular was quite tense. Uh, the talk was of de-risking rather than decoupling. But I, I wonder how much of a concern you think that is. Well, this first stems from a deep misunderstanding of China and China's aspirations. Chinese developmental model. Now, China hasn't been, hasn't been really all great and transparent uh, and skilled in communicating its desires and ambitions and aspirations, many of which, I think the majority of which, are actually totally legitimate and aspire a nation to become a rich nation so that its people can live better lives. Uh, the fact that its technologies are so hugely important for 80% of the people living in this world in developing countries, they are suitable for them. Um, unless we're making the argument of let's have three, three quarters of the people in the world living in abject poverty, I do not see any legitimate rationale behind trying to limit China's growth or trying to uh, oust China from the global supply chain. I think it's just completely against our, our, our you know, moral standing. Uh, not to say it's not in the spirit of collaboration since we built post-war, but this stems from a misunderstanding, I think, from on both sides, China with the U.S. and U.S. vice versa. Um, and for, for, for one thing, uh, the U.S., or at least a common, perspe a common perspective,
perception is China's trying to displace the U.S. I don't think that at all, that it's the it's aspiration. Um, in fact, its aspiration is to become a technical and industrial power, more like um, after the German model, a bigger Germany, uh, and with its managed capitalism rather than free market capitalism. Um, and at the same time, China also misperceives U.S. intention. I don't think everyone in the U.S. has the intention that we need to stop China's growth, but in fact, uh, delineate and carve out these areas of contention, uh, hopefully try to sort them out, respect each other's national security considerations, rather than let it corrode the entire economic landscape. If we're not careful, that's what's going to happen. Um, but also, I think a lot of this, um, this kind of um, uh, communication is a bit more emotional than rational rather than cold-headed. Uh, lots of these policies might actually not achieve its objective. Uh, for instance, can you really stop China's technological growth, right? Uh, can China really surpass uh, the U.S. and many of the key critical technologies? I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, but it's important to keep open the dialogue channels, to keep on talking. That's the first thing. And second is to see each other's perspective and understand each other. For instance, um, people think about China as having a centralized state model and that it's crowding out the private sector. That's not at all the case. Just look at the data. Uh, 30 years ago, 70% of the wealth belonged to the state. Today, 70% of the wealth belongs to the private sector, which also provides 80% of the jobs, 70% of the industrial output. It is firmly in the driver's seat. So um, that, that centralized approach is more political centralization and setting the strategic objective. But there's a huge amount of autonomy left to the local level, left to the entrepreneurs, left to the local mayors, and they have an interactive dynamic relationship. All of that is actually happening on the ground. And sometimes we get lost in these very grandiose messages on either side, but I don't think that de de depicts the reality. But those grandiose messages on either side you talk about have created um, tensions which are really bubbling between the United States and, and China, particularly when it comes to aggressive trade policies that appear to, to want to curb China's technological growth, not least the, the current um, chip wars. But then we have you know, China's foreign minister urging the United States to bring diplomatic relations back on track. So what's it going to take, do you think, to make all that happen? Uh, you know, China was a small economy, had a small imprint on the world when it first joined the WTO. And then it grew and um, it traded a lot. And then uh, the impact was becoming more clear. But that was after many, many years China had joined. But still, that's all part of the old playbook. You know, if we, we talk about WTO rules, uh, the U.S., um, violated uh, uh, a number of rules, uh, twice as many in terms of court cases uh, as China uh, did, and they should just take it to the court. They should uh, resolve it multilaterally. But I think that's part of the old playbook. If you look at the industrial subsidies, now China, now the U.S. is actually engaging in some as well, uh, with the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, etc. Uh, maybe it's that U.S. understands that there's certain element of state input for the green transition, for instance, for long-term uncertain cycles of investment that it can play a role. And I, I see this as competitive collaboration. That's the way I like to define the U.S., or I like to see how the U.S. and Chinese economic relationship will be defined in the future. And on the ground, again, there's a lot of collaboration, even though there's de-risking uh, in certain critical sectors. But if we look at renewables, um, many, many, many foreign companies are investing in Chinese EV companies. We're setting 
setting up joint ventures so that they can bring China's technology into European American markets, Japanese, Japanese markets. Chinese battery makers are setting up shop in, in Germany. Uh, some 80% of electric bus vehicles um, will be uh, done with Chinese companies all around the world. And Tesla opted for a Chinese battery maker, which is uh, making the, the German uh, government want to do more in that space. But that kind of competitive collaboration, also, also in AI, um, I, I think AI is a more contentious space and probably subject to certain national security issues, which I totally understand. But if you look at the US-China uh, collaboration in AI, it's far exceeding the second pair after the US and China. So again, it's the people and the business that have more to say. And I think there's political motivations to try to take these two countries apart. But on the ground, I think many still want to see a competitive collaborative um, uh, uh, um, kind of uh, partnership. And that competition is good. Competition is not bad. Uh, it makes you better and it makes consumers better off. Keijin, let's talk about the, the Chinese dream. Right. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping talks a lot about the great rejuvenation of the, of the Chinese people. How much room really is there for, for entrepreneurship, for innovation? The Chinese dream for me is still about getting the 600 million people who have not reached middle income by international standards. That means uh, with a monthly income of a little less than $300, getting them to become, uh, to be become uh, middle income and getting China's average $10,000 GDP per capita to $30,000 or $50,000 when it's richer. Now, um, I think that's first and foremost a priority for, still for everyone. We still have a huge swath of the population that can't meet uh, the, the needs of very dignified life and can secure a good future for their, for their children. And I think the China dream in my mind is that you have, uh, you can be in a country with economic opportunities. When you educate, you have better opportunities. When you invest, you have a good return and people live happy and secure lives um, in a relatively you know, healthy and safe environment. Now, the trouble is, or the challenge is, as we all know, as a country gets richer, the society becomes more complex. And I think the economy, because it has run so fast, it has run ahead of um, society, uh, evolution of the civil society, the new generation and what they think. And I think there's a, there's a mismatch. But we're seeing this kind of crisis of disbelief really everywhere around the world manifest in different ways. Ways, you know, rich countries have their own um, socio-psychological issues. And I think so it's not simply just economic uh, satisfaction, but I think that is the basis and still the core uh, of this, you know, half of the population in China. But then um, there needs to be, you know, there's there's a dynamic civic a civil uh, society with, um, you know, we see lots more community uh, identities being formed uh, because they they have more diverse uh, interest. You know, no longer just about having a higher income for tomorrow and being able to get their kids to school. And when that diversity blossom, it is a challenge. It's a challenge to China's model. Um, but uh, we also have to remember that China also evolves along with its economy. So we're about to see what's going to happen. Well, talking about seeing what's going to happen, how is the way that China innovates maybe different to, to 
other parts of the world, other regions, other countries? Yeah, I think there's um, also some mis misunderstandings about China's innovation. Just a few years back, people were still discussing, you know, is China really an imitator rather than an innovator? I think not many people would uh, argue that China is just a copycat anymore. Instead, it's seen Chinese technologies everywhere. In fact, one striking statistic is that four out of five most downloaded apps in the U.S. today are Chinese, including TikTok and Xi'an and Timu and, and others. And I think there's something about China's business models, uh, uh, China's, you know, um, very creative ways of engaging with customers and feedback that is really at the frontier. But it's not just that. It's not just applications that China does well. Um, China's also mastering cutting-edge technology and high-tech uh, because some of, many of it is skill, many of it is accumulation and learning. Uh, China has um, a host of uh, very um, uh, proficient engineers uh, and many, many good STEM students. So the master history of high-tech is something I'm uh, cautiously optimistic about for China. But is high-tech really groundbreaking technology? You know, the ones that go from zero to one, these creative breakthroughs. Um, I think there's some way to go on, on that front um, because, uh, for, well, really for a variety of reasons. And I think one of the key issues, apart from, you know, China's um, still very centralized state uh, innovation system, the whole of the nation system, um, is the is the impatience of, of the nation. It's kind of interesting that many people think about China as really patient in the government because of the long-termism. In fact, uh, it's, uh, it's not a paradox, actually, that uh, in some aspects it's a very impatient nation, a country with the people that have seen really remarkable growth, that, that want to really capture the moment and do things often quickly and want to see fast results. And that kind of spirit, the short, flat, fast attitude, which I talk about in my book, which was originally used to describe a winning volleyball strategy, but then used to describe winning investment strategies to these people's mind, um, is, is impatience. But if you think about creative breakthroughs, think about basic research, um, people, the fact that people need to be intrinsically motivated by intellectual passion, that's what is needed to have that long-term knowledge economy. But today, the reason that, that China's uh, business models are so successful is that they're very fast, and these companies become very successful in a short period of time. What about China's commitment to the green transition and the pace it's going with that? Yes, again, it's that, you know, um, that, that ambition, and I think there China has uh, fully showcased that unique model. Uh, which I describe in my book, which is political centralization, economic decentralization, where local mayors are motivated to work with local entrepreneurs and build mini Silicon Valleys all around China, um, uh, you know, help the entrepreneurs build supply chains, find them talent. And if you look at the distribution of unicorn companies in China, it's all over the place, not just in one or two cities, but in second tier cities like, you know, Chengdu or or Hefei or Wuhan, um, Guangzhou, etc. They're all over China, and then these local mayors compete with each other. You mentioned Hefei there, and there's a there's a, a nice story about a, an EV 
company, yeah. isn't it, that, that became Rescue because of this mayoral system? Yeah, so NIO is one of the top three EV companies uh, in China, and um, it was on the verge of bankrupt, uh, bankrupt. It was on the verge of bankruptcy after it went public. Um, and the Hefei government invited to move the headquarters there and then took a 25% stake. But most important was not the financial support. It was that it built an entire supply chain around NEO and helped its production grow by 81% within a year, all thanks to the government. And then it cashed out within a year. Um, and that, you know, that same government built the global quantum avenue with the global leading quantum communications companies there. And even in, I think, 2009, when I was supposed to build a subway, instead of building a subway, I'm not sure it's the wisest decision, but still, it illustrates the point. It, it staked in a company that now today produces something like a quarter of um, LCD screens and has overtaken Samsung. Uh, so you wouldn't think the local government would be the venture capitalist. Um, but there, it's important to point out that there's an iteration every time and they're becoming smarter because there have been waste, there have been inefficient uh, investment, wrong bets, so all of that, those problems exist. And also local protectionism where I want to protect my own company so whoever comes into my local region, I'm going to uh, block them. These are all problems of the model, but I think by and large, they did overcome some significant barriers for entrepreneurs, especially in a developing country. And that's the same model that China's using to build uh, EVs, uh, do the grand transition. And for instance, state um, uh, put, you know, 4 million EV chargers around the country, as opposed to 140,000 in the US. And that's the thing that only a state can do. That's jaw dropping, isn't it? So that big difference there. Look, you, you've talked a lot too about the private sector as, as being in the driving seat. Um, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, in the driving seat in China today, I mean, where are they really doing the heavy lifting? Is it in the green sectors? Is it in renewables? Is it in electrification? Um, and how does that fit in to President Xi's modernization drive? Well, it's primarily in manufacturing, hopefully eventually in services. I think some of the strategic sectors are still SOE dominated, and that is true, but that's in communication and resources. But, you know, the most innovative companies, uh, the most competitive and dynamic ones are, are you know, are private companies uh, that, you know, is shot from zero to 20 million private companies in a matter of a few decades um, because of the blossoming. But that's not to say that they don't have challenges. It is a very challenging environment to be a private entrepreneur in China. The one, on the one hand, you have this huge lucrative market. On the other hand, um, policies can sometimes change, can sometimes be erratic, and it's hard to predict uh, the macro stability in the future. But, you know, entrepreneurs are highly, highly resilient in China. That's kind of the condition to success. And they have to constantly reinvent themselves. They have to constantly know how to interact with local officials, even though now local officials need them as much as they need local officials. So I'm not trying to say that this private dynamic on, uh, entrepreneur landscape is all that easy and great. It is fantastic, but they have their own challenges, but they're marching forward regardless. But you say that China doesn't want to be like the US when it, when it comes to the private sector driving the economy. China does not see the American-style capitalism, especially the relationship between capital and politics, where politics sing to the tunes of capital as kind of a model of inspiration. In China, politics 
it's probably fair to say that politics is above uh, capital. So um, they will continue that kind of uh, relationship where capitalism drives the economy. But in the future, we're probably going to see more regulations, more um, you know, monitoring, uh, because uh, the American-style capitalism, at least to the Chinese, um, you know, um, there, there's a bit more. Um, there's not enough enough uh, uh, protection of consumers. There's a lot of inequality, and China wants the olive-shaped income distribution, kind of fat in the. Middle. Explain that <laughs> olive-shaped distribution. Ex explain that. Uh, well, um, uh, China wants to see an income distribution where the top to end, top and end, bottom. Are, 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 are narrow, so a small share of the people extremely wealthy, but the majority of wealth uh, being accounted for by the, by the vast majority of people. And uh, as we all know, inequality, especially the 90-10 percentile for uh, the U.S., has risen substantially, so wealthy getting incredibly wealthy. Now, is China be going to be able to achieve that and at the same time uh, uh, preserve its economic dynamism is really the key question here because there are trade-offs. You want the smartest and brightest and most productive people to work more, not to incentivize them. So that's always kind of the key question. But I think we all have to read China as, as some, a place where policies can change and adjust and be recalibrated and fine-tuned uh, to kind of be fit for purpose. And that might look different in different uh, periods of time. So never take anything as permanent. You can watch every episode of The Agenda in full on CGTN Europe's YouTube channel. And for exclusive extra content from me, my guests and the rest of the team, don't forget to check out at The Agenda Show on TikTok. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of The Agenda team here in London, goodbye.